The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 13 Henry Wimbush brought down with him to dinner a budget of printed sheets loosely bound together in a cardboard portfolio. Today, he said, exhibiting it with a certain solemnity, today I have finished the printing of my History of Chrome. I helped to set up the type of the last page this evening. The famous history, cried Anne, the writing and printing of this magnum opus had been going on as long as she could remember. All her childhood long, Uncle Henry's history had been a vague and fabulous thing, often heard of and never seen. It has taken me nearly thirty years, said Mr. Wimbush, twenty-five years of writing and nearly four of printing, and now it's finished. A whole chronicle from Sir Ferdinando Lapith's birth to the death of my father William Wimbush, more than three centuries and a half. A history of Chrome, written at Chrome, and printed at Chrome by my own press. Shall we be allowed to read it now it's finished? asked Dennis. Mr. Wimbush nodded. Certainly, he said, and I hope you will not find it uninteresting, he added modestly. Our muniment room is particularly rich in ancient records, and I have some genuinely new light to throw on the introduction of the three-pronged fork. And the people, asked Gombold, Sir Ferdinando, and the rest of them? Were they amusing? Were there any crimes or tragedies in the family? Let me see. Henry Wimbush rubbed his chin thoughtfully. I can only think of two suicides, one violent death, four or perhaps five broken hearts, and half a dozen little blots on the scutcheon in the way of misalliances, seductions, natural children, and the like. No, on the whole it's a placid and uneventful record. The Wimbushes and the Lapiths were always an unadventurous, respectable crew, said Priscilla, with a note of scorn in her voice. If I were to write my family history now, why, it would be one long, continuous blot from beginning to end. She laughed jovially, and helped herself to another glass of wine. If I were to write mine, Mr. Scogan remarked, it wouldn't exist. After the second generations, we Scogans are lost in the mists of antiquity. After dinner, said Henry Wimbush, a little piqued by his wife's disparaging comment on the masters of Chrome, I'll read you an episode from my history that will make you admit that even the Lapiths, in their own respectable way, had their tragedies and strange adventures. I'm glad to hear it, said Priscilla. Glad to hear what? asked Jenny, emerging suddenly from her private interior world like a cuckoo from a clock. She received an explanation, smiled, nodded, cuckooed at last, I see, and popped back, clapping shut the door behind her. Dinner was eaten. The party had adjourned to the drawing-room. Now, said Henry Wimbush, pulling up a chair to the lamp, he put on his round pince-nez, rimmed with tortoiseshell, and began cautiously to turn over the pages of his loose and still fragmentary book. He found his place at last. Shall I begin? he asked, looking up. Do, said Priscilla, yawning. In the midst of an attentive silence, Mr. Wimbush gave a little preliminary cough 
and started to read. The infant who was destined to become the fourth baronet of the name of Lapith was born in the year 1740. He was a very small baby, weighing not more than three pounds at birth, but from the first he was sturdy and healthy. In honour of his maternal grandfather, Sir Hercules Ockham of Bishop's Ockham, he was christened Hercules. His mother, like many other mothers, kept a notebook in which his progress from month to month was recorded. He walked at ten months, and before his second year was out he had learned to speak a number of words. At three years he weighed but twenty-four pounds, and at six, though he could read and write perfectly, and showed a remarkable aptitude for music, he was no larger and heavier than a well-grown child of two. Meanwhile his mother had borne two other children, a boy and a girl, one of whom died of croup during infancy, while the other was carried off by smallpox before it reached the age of five. Hercules remained the only surviving child. On his twelfth birthday Hercules was still only three feet and two inches in height. His head, which was very handsome and nobly shaped, was too big for his body, but otherwise he was exquisitely proportioned, and, for his size, of great strength and agility. His parents, in the hope of making him grow, consulted all the most eminent physicians of the time. Their various prescriptions were followed to the letter, but in vain. One ordered a very plentiful meat diet, another exercise, a third constructed a little rack, modelled on those employed by the Holy Inquisition, to which Hercules was stretched with excruciating torments for half an hour every morning and evening. In the course of the next three years Hercules gained perhaps two inches. After that his growth stopped completely, and he remained for the rest of his life a pygmy of three feet and four inches. His father, who had built the most extravagant hopes upon his son, planning for him in his imagination a military career equal to that of Marlborough, found himself a disappointed man. "'I have brought an abortion into the world,' he would say, and he took so violent a dislike to his son that the boy dared scarcely come into his presence. His temper, which had been serene, was turned by disappointment to moroseness and savagery. He avoided all company, being, as he said, ashamed to show himself the father of a lucis naturae amongst normal, healthy human beings, and took to solitary drinking, which carried him very rapidly to his grave. For, the year before Hercules came of age, his father was taken off by an apoplexy. His mother, whose love for him had increased with the growth of his father's unkindness, did not long survive, but little more than a year after her husband's death succumbed after eating two dozen of oysters, to an attack of typhoid fever. Hercules thus found himself at the age of twenty-one alone in the world, and master of a considerable fortune, including the estate and mansion of Crome. The beauty and intelligence of his childhood had survived into his manly age, and, but for his dwarfish stature, he would have taken his place among the handsomest and most accomplished young men of his time. He was well read in the Greek and Latin authors, as well as in all the moderns of any merit who had written in English, French, or Italian. He had a good ear for music, and was no indifferent performer on the violin, which he used to play like a bass viol, seated on a chair with the instrument between his legs. To the music of the harpsichord and clavichord he was extremely partial, but the smallness of his hands made it impossible for him ever to perform upon these instruments. He had a small ivory flute made for him, on which, whenever he was melancholy, he used to play a simple country air or jig, 
affirming that this rustic music had more power to clear and raise the spirits than the most artificial productions of the masters. From an early age he practised the composition of poetry, but, though conscious of his great powers in this art, he would never publish any specimen of his writing. My stature, he would say, is reflected in my verses. If the public were to read them, it would not be because I am a poet, but because I am a dwarf. Several manuscript books of Sir Hercules' poems survive. A single specimen will suffice to illustrate his qualities as a poet. In ancient days, while yet the world was young, ere Abram fed his flocks or Homer sung, when blacksmith Jubal tamed creative fire, and Jabal dwelt in tents and Jubal struck the lyre, flesh grown corrupt brought forth a monstrous birth, and obscene giants trod the shrinking earth, till God, impatient of their sinful brood, gave rain to wrath and drowned them in the flood. Teeming again, repeopled Tellus bore the lubber hero and the man of war, Huge towers of brawn, topped with an empty skull, witlessly bold, heroically dull. Long ages passed, and man grown more refined, slighter in muscle but of vaster mind, smiled at his grandsire's broadsword, bow and bill, and learned to wield the pencil and the quill. The glowing canvas and the written page immortalized his name from age to age. His name emblazoned on fame's temple wall, for art grew great as humankind grew small. Thus man's long progress step by step we trace. The giant dies, the hero takes his place. The giant vile, the dull heroic block, At one we shudder, and at one we mock. Man last appears. In him the soul's pure flame Burns brightlier in a not inordinate frame. Of old when heroes fought and giants swarmed, Men were huge mounds of matter scarce informed. Wearied by leavening so vast a mass, The spirit slept, and all the mind was crass. The smaller carcass of these latter days is soon informed. The soul unwearied plays, and like a pharaoh's darts abroad her mental rays. But can we think that providence will stay man's footsteps here upon the upward way? Mankind in understanding and in grace advanced so far beyond the giant's race? Hence, impious thought, still, led by God's own hand, mankind proceeds towards the promised land. A time will come, prophetic, I descry remoter dawns along the gloomy sky, when happy mortals of a golden age will backwards turn the dark historic page, and, in our vaunted race of men, behold a form as gross, a mind as dead and cold, as we in giants see, in warriors of old. A time will come, when in the soul shall be from all superfluous matter wholly free, when the light body, agile as a fawn's, shall sport with grace along the velvet lawns. Nature's most delicate and final birth, mankind, perfected, shall possess the earth. But ah, not yet, for still the giant's race, huge, though diminished, tramps the earth's fair face, gross and repulsive, yet perversely proud, men of their imperfections boast aloud, vain of their bulk, of all they still retain, of giant ugliness, absurdly vain. At all that small they point their stupid scorn, and, monsters, think themselves divinely born. Sad is the fate of those, are sad indeed, the rare precursors of the nobler breed, who come man's golden glory to foretell, but pointing heavenwards, live themselves in hell. As soon as he came into the estate, Sir Hercules set about remodelling his household, for, though by no means ashamed of his deformity, 
Indeed, if we may judge from the poem quoted above, he regarded himself as being in many ways superior to the ordinary race of man. He found the presence of full-grown men and women embarrassing. Realising, too, that he must abandon all ambitions in the great world, he determined to retire absolutely from it, and to create, as it were, at Crome, a private world of his own, in which all should be proportionable to himself. Accordingly, he discharged all the old servants of the house, and replaced them, gradually, as he was able to find suitable successors, by others of dwarfish stature. In the course of a few years he had assembled about himself a numerous household, no member of which was above four feet high, and the smallest among them scarcely two feet and six inches. His father's dogs, such as setters, mastiffs, greyhounds, and a pack of beagles, he sold or gave away as too large and too boisterous for his house, replacing them by pugs and King Charles spaniels, and whatever other breeds of dog were the smallest. His father's stable was also sold. For his own use, whether riding or driving, he had six black Shetland ponies, with four very choice piebald animals of new forest breed. Having thus settled his household entirely to his own satisfaction, it only remained for him to find some suitable companion with whom to share his paradise. Sir Hercules had a susceptible heart, and had more than once, between the ages of sixteen and twenty, felt what it was to love. But here his deformity had been a source of the most bitter humiliation, for, having once dared to declare himself to a young lady of his choice, he had been received with laughter. On his persisting, she had picked him up and shaken him like an importunate child, telling him to run away and plague her no more. The story soon got about. Indeed, the young lady herself used to tell it as a particularly pleasant anecdote, and the taunts and mockery it occasioned were a source of the most acute distress to Hercules. From the poems written at this period, we gather that he meditated taking his own life. In course of time, however, he lived down this humiliation, but never again, though he often fell in love, and that very passionately, did he dare to make any advances to those in whom he was interested. After coming to the estate, and finding that he was in a position to create his own world as he desired it, he saw that if he was to have a wife, which he very much desired, being of an affectionate and indeed amorous temper, he must choose her as he had chosen his servants, from among the race of dwarfs. But to find a suitable wife was, he found, a matter of some difficulty, for he would marry none who was not distinguished by beauty and gentle birth. The dwarfish daughter of Lord Bembra he refused on the ground that besides being a pygmy she was hunchbacked, while another young lady, an orphan belonging to a very good family in Hampshire, was rejected by him because her face, like that of so many dwarfs, was wizened and repulsive. Finally, when he was almost despairing of success, he heard from a reliable source that Count Titimolo, a Venetian nobleman, possessed a daughter of exquisite beauty and great accomplishments, who was by three feet in height. Setting out at once for Venice, he went immediately on his arrival to pay his respects to the Count, whom he found living with his wife and five children in a very mean apartment in one of the poorer quarters of town. Indeed, the Count was so far reduced in his circumstances that he was even negotiating, so it was rumoured, with a travelling company of clowns and acrobats who had had the misfortune to lose their performing dwarf for the sale of his diminutive daughter Philomena. Sir Hercules arrived in time to save her from this untoward fate, 
for he was so much charmed by Philomena's grace and beauty that at the end of three days' courtship he made her a formal offer of marriage, which was accepted by her no less joyfully than by her father, who perceived in an English son-in-law a rich and unfailing source of revenue. After an unostentatious marriage, at which the English ambassador acted as one of the witnesses, Sir Hercules and his bride returned by sea to England, where they settled down, as it proved, to a life of uneventful happiness. Crome and its household of dwarfs delighted Philomena, who felt herself now, for the first time, to be a free woman living among her equals in a friendly world. She had many tastes in common with her husband, especially that of music. She had a beautiful voice of a power surprising in one so small, and could touch A in alt without effort. Accompanied by her husband on his fine Cremona fiddle, which he played, as we have noted before, as one plays the bass viol, she would sing all the liveliest and tenderest airs from the operas and cantatas of her native country. Seated together at the harpsichord, they found that they could, with their four hands, play all the music written for two hands of ordinary size, a circumstance which gave Sir Hercules unfailing pleasure. When they were not making music or reading together, which they often did, both in English and Italian, they spent their time in healthful outdoor exercises, sometimes rowing in a little boat on the lake, but more often riding or driving, occupations in which, because they were entirely new to her, Philomena especially delighted. When she had become a perfectly proficient rider, Philomena and her husband used often to go hunting in the park, at that time very much more extensive than it is now. They hunted not foxes, nor hares, but rabbits, using a pack of about thirty black and fawn-coloured pugs, a kind of dog which, when not overfed, can course a rabbit as well as any of the smaller breeds. Four dwarf grooms, dressed in scarlet liveries and mounted on white Exmoor ponies, hunted the pack, while their master and mistress, in green habits, followed either on the black Shetlands or on the piebald New Forest ponies. A picture of the whole hunt, dogs, horses, grooms and masters, was painted by William Stubbs, whose work Sir Hercules admired so much that he invited him, though a man of ordinary stature, to come and stay at the mansion for the purpose of executing this picture. Stubbs likewise painted a portrait of Sir Hercules and his lady, driving in their green enamelled calash, drawn by four black Shetlands. Sir Hercules wears a plum-coloured velvet coat and white breeches. Philomena is dressed in flowered muslin and a very large hat with pink feathers. The two figures in their gay carriage stand out sharply against a dark background of trees. But to the left of the picture the trees fall away and disappear, so that the four black ponies are seen against a pale and strangely lurid sky that has the golden-brown colour of thunderclouds lighted up by the sun. In this way four years passed happily by. At the end of that time Philomena found herself great with child. Sir Hercules was overjoyed. If God is good, he wrote in his day-book, the name of Lapith will be preserved, and our rarer and more delicate race transmitted through the generations, until, in the fullness of time, the world shall recognise the superiority of those beings whom now it uses to make mock of. On his wife's being brought to bed of a son, he wrote a poem to the same effect. The child was christened Ferdinando in memory of the builder of the house. 
With the passage of the months a certain sense of disquiet began to invade the minds of Sir Hercules and his lady, for the child was growing with an extraordinary rapidity. At a year he weighed as much as Hercules had weighed when he was three. Ferdinando grows crescendo, wrote Philomena in her diary. It seems not natural. At eighteen months the baby was almost as tall as their smallest jockey, who was a man of thirty-six. Could it be that Ferdinando was destined to become a man of the normal, gigantic dimensions? It was a thought to which neither of his parents dared yet give open utterance, but in the secrecy of their respective diaries they brooded over it in terror and dismay. On his third birthday Ferdinando was taller than his mother, and not more than a couple of inches short of his father's height. "'Today, for the first time,' wrote Sir Hercules, "'we discussed the situation. "'The hideous truth can be concealed no longer. "'Ferdinando is not one of us. "'On this, his third birthday, "'a day when we should have been rejoicing at the health, "'the strength and beauty of our child, "'we wept together over the ruin of our happiness. "'God give us strength to bear this cross. "'At the age of eight, Ferdinando was so large and so exuberantly healthy that his parents decided, though reluctantly, to send him to school. He was packed off to Eton at the beginning of the next half. A profound peace settled upon the house. Ferdinando returned for the summer holidays, larger and stronger than ever. One day he knocked down the butler and broke his arm. "'He is rough, inconsiderate, unamenable to persuasion,' wrote his father. "'The only thing that will teach him manners is corporal chastisement.' Ferdinando, who— at this age was already seventeen inches taller than his father, received no corporal chastisement. One summer holidays, about three years later, Ferdinando returned to Crome, accompanied by a very large mastiff dog. He had bought it from an old man at Windsor who had found the beast too expensive to feed. It was a savage, unreliable animal, hardly had it entered the house when it attacked one of Sir Hercules' favourite pugs seizing the creature in its jaws and shaking it till it was nearly dead. Extremely put out by this occurrence, Sir Hercules ordered that the beast should be chained up in the stable yard. Ferdinando sullenly answered that the dog was his, and he would keep it where he pleased. His father, growing angry, bade him take the animal out of the house at once, on pain of his utmost displeasure. Ferdinando refused to move. His mother at this moment coming into the room, the dog flew at her, knocked her down, and in a twinkling had very severely mauled her arm and shoulder. In another instant it must infallibly have had her by the throat, had not Sir Hercules drawn his sword and stabbed the animal to the heart. Turning on his son, he ordered him to leave the room immediately, as being unfit to remain in the same place with the mother whom he had nearly murdered. So awe-inspiring was the spectacle of Sir Hercules standing with one foot on the carcass of the giant dog, his sword drawn and still bloody, so commanding were his voice, his gestures, and the expression of his face, that Ferdinando slunk out of the room in terror, and behaved himself for all the rest of the vacation in an entirely exemplary fashion. His mother soon recovered from the bites of the mastiff, but the effect on her mind of this adventure was ineradicable. From that time forth she lived always among imaginary terrors. The two years which Ferdinando spent on the continent making the grand tour were a period of happy repose for his parents. But even now the thought of the future haunted them, nor were they able to solace themselves with all the diversions of their younger days. 
The Lady Philomena had lost her voice, and Sir Hercules was grown too rheumatical to play the violin. He, it is true, still rode after his pugs, but his wife felt herself too old and, since the episode of the Mastiff, too nervous for such sports. At most, to please her husband, she would follow the hunt at a distance in a little gig drawn by the safest and oldest of the Shetlands. The day fixed for Ferdinando's return came round. Philomena, sick with vague dreads and presentiments, retired to her chamber and her bed. Sir Hercules received his son alone. A giant in a brown travelling suit entered the room. "'Welcome home, my son,' said Sir Hercules in a voice that trembled a little. "'I hope I see you well, sir,' Ferdinando bent down to shake hands, then straightened himself up again. The top of his father's head reached to the level of his hip. Ferdinando had not come alone. Two friends of his own age accompanied him, and each of the young men had brought a servant. Not for thirty years had Crome been desecrated by the presence of so many members of the common race of men. Sir Hercules was appalled and indignant, but the laws of hospitality had to be obeyed. He received the young gentleman with grave politeness, and sent the servants to the kitchen, with orders that they should be well cared for. The old family dining-table was dragged out into the light and dusted. Sir Hercules and his lady were accustomed to dine at a small table twenty inches high. Simon, the aged butler, who could only just look over the edge of the big table, was helped at supper by the three servants brought by Ferdinando and his guests. Sir Hercules presided, and, with his usual grace, supported a conversation on the pleasures of foreign travel, the beauties of art and nature to be met with abroad, the opera at Venice, the singing of the orphans in the churches of the same city, and on other topics of similar nature. The young men were not particularly attentive to his discourses. They were occupied in watching the efforts of the butler to change the plates and replenish the glasses. They covered their laughter by violent and repeated fits of coughing or choking. Sir Hercules affected not to notice, but changed the subject of the conversation to sport. Upon this, one of the young men asked whether it was true, as he had heard, that he used to hunt the rabbit with a pack of pug dogs. Sir Hercules replied that it was, and proceeded to describe the chase in some detail. The young men roared with laughter. When supper was over, Sir Hercules climbed down from his chair, and, giving as his excuse that he must see how his lady did, bade them good-night. The sound of laughter followed him up the stairs. Philomena was not asleep. She had been lying on her bed, listening to the sound of enormous laughter, and the tread of strangely heavy feet on the stairs and along the corridors. Sir Hercules drew a chair to her bedside, and sat there for a long time in silence, holding his wife's hand and sometimes gently squeezing it. At about ten o'clock they were startled by a violent noise. There was a breaking of glass, a stamping of feet, with an outburst of shouts and laughter. The uproar continuing for several minutes, Sir Hercules rose to his feet, and, in spite of his wife's entreaties, prepared to go and see what was happening. There was no light on the staircase, and Sir Hercules groped his way down cautiously, lowering himself from stair to stair, and standing for a moment on each tread before adventuring on a new step. The noise was louder here, the shouting articulated itself into recognisable words and phrases. A line of light was visible under the dining-room door. 
Sir Hercules tiptoed across the hall towards it. Just as he approached the door, there was another terrific crash of breaking glass and jangled metal. What could they be doing? Standing on tiptoe, he managed to look through the keyhole. In the middle of the ravaged table, old Simon, the butler so primed with drink that he could scarcely keep his balance, was dancing a jig. His feet crunched and tinkled among the broken glass, and his shoes were wet with spilt wine. The three young men sat round, thumping the table with their hands or with the empty wine-bottles, shouting and laughing encouragement. The three servants, leaning against the wall, laughed too. Ferdinando suddenly threw a handful of walnuts at the dancer's head, which so dazed and surprised the little man that he staggered and fell down on his back, upsetting a decanter and several glasses. They raised him up, gave him some brandy to drink, thumped him on the back. The old man smiled and hiccuped. "'Tomorrow,' said Ferdinando, "'we'll have a concerted ballet of the whole household. "'With Father Hercules wearing his club and lion skin,' added one of his companions, "'and all three roared with laughter. "'Sir Hercules would look and listen no further. "'He crossed the hall once more and began to climb the stairs, "'lifting his knees painfully high at each degree. "'This was the end. "'There was no place for him now in the world, "'no place for him and Ferdinando together.' His wife was still awake. To her questioning glance he answered, They are making a mock of old Simon. Tomorrow it will be our turn. They were silent for a time. At last Philomena said, I do not want to see tomorrow. It is better not, said Sir Hercules. Going into his closet, he wrote in his day-book a full and particular account of all the events of the evening. While he was still engaged in this task, he rang for a servant and ordered hot water and a bath to be made ready for him at eleven o'clock. When he had finished writing, he went into his wife's room, and, preparing a dose of opium twenty times as strong as that which she was accustomed to take when she could not sleep, he brought it into her, saying, Here is your sleeping draught. Philomena took the glass and lay for a little time, but did not drink immediately. The tears came into her eyes. Do you remember the songs we used to sing? sitting out there sulla terrazza in the summer-time. She began singing softly in her ghost of a cracked voice, a few bars from Stradella's Amor, Amor, Don Dormir Piu, and you playing the violin. It seems such a short time ago, and yet so long, long, long. Adio, amore, arrivederci. She drank off the draught, and, lying back on the pillow, closed her eyes. Sir Hercules kissed her hand and tiptoed away, as though he were afraid of waking her. He returned to his closet, and, having recorded his wife's last words to him, he poured into his bath the water that had been brought up in accordance with his orders. The water being too hot for him to get into the bath at once, he took down from the shelf his copy of Suetonius. He wished to read how Seneca had died. He opened the book at random. But dwarfs, he read, he held in abhorrence as being lucis naturae, and of ill omen. He winced as though he had been struck. This same Augustus, he remembered, had exhibited in the amphitheatre a young man called Lucius, of good family, who was not quite two feet in height, and weighed seventeen pounds, but had a stentorian voice. He turned over the pages, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, it was a tale of growing horror. Seneca, his preceptor, he forced to kill himself. And there was Pretorius, 
who had called his friends about him at the last, bidding them to talk to him, not of the consolations of philosophy, but of love and gallantry, while the life was ebbing away through his open veins. Dipping his pen once more in the ink, he wrote on the last page of his diary, he died a Roman death, then, putting the toes of one foot into the water, and finding that it was not too hot, he threw off his dressing-gown and, taking a razor in his hand, sat down in the bath. With one deep cut he severed the artery in his left wrist, then lay back and composed his mind to meditation. The blood oozed out, floating through the water in dissolving wreaths and spirals. In a little while the whole bath was tinged with pink. The colour deepened. Sir Hercules felt himself mastered by an invincible drowsiness. He was sinking from vague dream to dream. Soon he was sound asleep. There was not much blood in his small body. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 14 For their after-luncheon coffee the party generally adjourned to the library. Its windows looked east, and at this hour of the day it was the coolest place in the whole house. It was a large room, fitted during the eighteenth century, with white painted shelves of an elegant design. In the middle of one wall a door, ingeniously upholstered with rows of dummy books, gave access to a deep cupboard, where, among a pile of letter-files and old newspapers, the mummy-case of an Egyptian lady, brought back by the second Sir Ferdinando on his return from the Grand Tour, mouldered in the darkness. From ten yards away, and at first glance, one might almost have mistaken this secret door for a section of shelving filled with genuine books. Coffee cup in hand, Mr. Scogan was standing in front of the dummy bookshelf. Between the sips he discoursed. The bottom shelf, he was saying, is taken up by an encyclopaedia in fourteen volumes. Useful but a little dull, as is also Caprimulge's Dictionary of the Finnish Language. The biographical dictionary looks more promising. Biography of men who were born great. Biography of men who achieved greatness, biography of men who had greatness thrust upon them, and biography of men who were never great at all. Then there are ten volumes of Tom's Works and Wanderings, while The Wild Goose Chase, a novel by an anonymous author, fills no less than six. But what's this? What's this? Mr. Scogan stood on tiptoe and peered up. Seven volumes of The Tales of Knockenspotch. The Tales of Knockenspotch, he repeated. "'Ah, my dear Henry,' he said, turning round, "'these are your best books. I would willingly give all the rest of your library for them.' The happy possessor of a multitude of first editions, Mr. Wimbush, could afford to smile indulgently. "'Is it possible,' Mr. Scogan went on, "'that they possess nothing more than a back and a title?' He opened the cupboard door and peeped inside, as though he hoped to find the rest of the books behind it. "'Phew!' he said, and shut the door again. It smells of dust and mildew. How symbolical! One comes to the great masterpieces of the past, expecting some miraculous illumination, and one finds, on opening them, only darkness and dust and a faint smell of decay. After all, what is reading but a vice, like drink or venery or any other form of excessive self-indulgence? One reads to tickle and amuse one's mind. One reads, above all, to prevent oneself thinking. Still, the tales of Knockenspotch. 
he paused and thoughtfully drummed with his fingers on the backs of the non-existent, unattainable books. "'But I disagree with you about reading,' said Mary. "'About serious reading, I mean.' "'Quite right, Mary, quite right,' Mr. Scogan answered. "'I had forgotten there were any serious people in the room.' "'I like the idea of biographies,' said Dennis. "'There's room for us all within the scheme. It's comprehensive.' "'Yes, the biographies are good, the biographies are excellent,' Mr. Scogan agreed. "'I imagine them written in a very elegant Regency style. "'Brighton Pavilion in words, perhaps by the greatest de Lamprière himself. "'You know his classical dictionary?' "'Ah!' Mr. Scogan raised his hand and let it limply fall again in a gesture which implied that words failed him. "'Read his biography of Helen. Read how Jupiter, disguised as a swan, was enabled to avail himself of the situation.' vis-à-vis -vis to Leda, and to think that he may have, must have written these biographies of the great. What a work, Henry! And owing to the idiotic arrangement of your library, it can't be read. I prefer The Wild Goose Chase, said Anne, a novel in six volumes. It must be restful. Restful, Mr. Scogan repeated. You've hit on the right word. A wild goose chase is sound, but a bit old-fashioned. Pictures of clerical life in the fifties, you know, specimens of the landed gentry peasants for pathos and comedy, and in the background always the picturesque beauties of nature soberly described. All very good and solid, but, like certain puddings, just a little dull. Personally, I like much better the notion of Tom's works and wanderings. The eccentric Mr. Tom of Tom's Hill, old Tom Tom, as his intimates used to call him. He spent ten years in Tibet organising the clarified butter industry on modern European lines and was able to retire at thirty-six with a handsome fortune. The rest of his life he devoted to travel and ratiocination. Here is the result. Mr. Scogan tapped the dummy books, and now we come to the tales of Knockenspotch. What a masterpiece, and what a great man! Knockenspotch knew how to write fiction. Ah, Dennis, if you could only read Knockenspotch, you wouldn't be writing a novel about the wearisome development of a young man's character. You wouldn't be describing in endless fastidious detail cultured life in Chelsea and Bloomsbury and Hampstead. You would be trying to write a readable book. But then, alas, owing to the peculiar arrangement of our host's library, you will never read Knockenspotch. Nobody could regret the fact more than I do, said Dennis. It was Knockenspotch, Mr. Scogan continued, the great Knockenspotch, who delivered us from the dreary tyranny of the realistic novel. My life, Knockenspotch said, is not so long that I can afford to spend precious hours writing or reading descriptions of middle-class interiors. He said again, I am tired of seeing the human mind bogged in a social plenum. I prefer to paint it in a vacuum, freely and sportively bombinating. I say, said Gombold, Knock and Spotch was a little obscure sometimes, wasn't he? He was, Mr. Scogan replied, and with intention it made him seem even profounder than he actually was. But it was only in his aphorisms that he was so dark and oracular. In his tales he was always luminous. Oh, those tales, those tales! How shall I describe them? Fabulous characters shoot across his pages like gaily-dressed performers on the trapeze. There are extraordinary adventures and still more extraordinary speculations. Intelligences and emotions, relieved of all the imbecile preoccupations of civilised life, move in intricate and subtle dances, crossing and recrossing, advancing, retreating, impinging. An immense erudition and an immense fancy go hand in hand. All the ideas of the present and of the past, on every possible subject, 
bob up among the tails, smile gravely or grimace at a caricature of themselves, then disappear to make place for something new. The verbal surface of his writing is rich and fantastically diversified. The wit is incessant. The but couldn't you give us a specimen? Dennis broke in. A concrete example? Alas, Mr. Scogan replied, Knockenspotch's great book is like the sword Excalibur. It remains stuck fast in this door, awaiting the coming of a writer with genius enough to draw it forth. I am not even a writer. I am not so much as qualified to attempt the task. The extraction of Knockenspot from this wooden prison I leave, my dear Dennis, to you. Thank you, said Dennis. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 15 In the time of the amiable Brantome, Mr. Scogan was saying, every debutante at the French court was invited to dine at the King's table, where she was served with wine in a handsome silver cup of Italian workmanship. It was no ordinary cup, this goblet of the debutantes, for, inside, it had been most curiously and ingeniously engraved, with a series of very lively amorous scenes. With each draught that the young lady swallowed, these engravings became increasingly visible, and the court looked on with interest every time she put her nose in the cup, to see whether she blushed at what the ebbing wine revealed. If the debutante blushed, they laughed at her for her innocence. If she did not, she was laughed at for being too knowing. "'Do you propose,' asked Anne, "'that the custom should be revived at Buckingham Palace?' "'I do not,' said Mr. Scogan. "'I merely quoted the anecdote as an illustration of the custom, "'so genially frank, of the sixteenth century. "'I might have quoted other anecdotes "'to show that the customs of the seventeenth and eighteenth, "'of the fifteenth and fourteenth centuries, "'and indeed every other century, "'from the time of Hammurabi onwards, "'were equally genial and equally frank.' the only century in which customs were not characterised by the same cheerful openness was the nineteenth, of blessed memory. It was the astonishing exception, and yet, with what one must suppose was a deliberate disregard of history, it looked upon its horribly pregnant silences as normal and natural and right. The frankness of the previous fifteen or twenty thousand years was considered abnormal and perverse. It was a curious phenomenon." "'I entirely agree,' Mary panted with excitement in her effort to bring out what she had to say. "'Havelock Ellis says—' Mr. Scogan, like a policeman arresting the flow of traffic, held up his hand. "'He does, I know. And that brings me to my next point, the nature of the reaction. "'Havelock Ellis, the reaction, when it came, and we may say roughly that it set in a little before the beginning of this century, the reaction was to openness.' but not to the same openness as had reigned in the earlier ages. It was to a scientific openness, not to the jovial frankness of the past, that we returned. The whole question of amour became a terribly serious one. Earnest young men wrote in the public prints that from this time forth it would be impossible ever again to make a joke of any sexual matter. Professors wrote thick books in which sex was sterilised and dissected. It has become customary for serious young women, like Mary, to discuss with philosophic calm matters of which the merest hint would have sufficed to throw the youth of the sixties into a delirium of amorous excitement. It is all very estimable, no doubt. But still, Mr. Scogan sighed, I, for one, should like to see, mingled with this scientific ardour, 
a little more of the jovial spirit of Rabelais and Chaucer. "'I entirely disagree with you,' said Mary. "'Sex isn't a laughing matter. It's serious.' "'Perhaps,' answered Mr. Scogan, "'perhaps I'm an obscene old man, for I must confess that I cannot always regard it as wholly serious.' "'But I tell you,' began Mary furiously, her face had flushed with excitement, her cheeks were the cheeks of a great ripe peach. Indeed, Mr. Scogan continued, it seems to me one of few permanently and everlastingly amusing subjects that exist. A more is the one human activity of any importance in which laughter and pleasure preponderate, if ever so slightly, over misery and pain. I entirely disagree, said Mary. There was a silence. Anne looked at her watch. Nearly a quarter to eight, she said. I wonder when Ivor will turn up. She got up from her deck-chair, and, leaning her elbows on the balustrade of the terrace, looked out over the valley and towards the farther hills. Under the level evening sun the architecture of the land revealed itself. The deep shadows, the bright contrasting lights, gave the hills a new solidity. Irregularities of the surface, unsuspected before, were picked out with light and shade. The grass, the corn, the foliage of trees were stippled with intricate shadows. The surface of things had taken on a marvellous enrichment. "'Look,' said Anne suddenly, and pointed. On the opposite side of the valley, at the crest of the ridge, a cloud of dust flushed by the sunlight to rosy gold was moving rapidly along the skyline. "'It's either, one can tell by the speed.' The dust cloud descended into the valley and was lost. A horn with the voice of a sea-lion made itself heard, approaching. A minute later, Ivor came leaping round the corner of the house. His hair waved in the wind of his own speed. He laughed as he saw them. "'Anne, darling,' he cried, and embraced her, embraced Mary, very nearly embraced Mr. Scogan. "'Well, here I am. I've come with incredulous speed.' Ivor's vocabulary was rich, but a little erratic. "'I'm not late for dinner, am I?' He hoisted himself up onto the balustrade, and sat there, kicking his heels. With one arm he embraced a large stone flower-pot, leaning his head sideways against its hard and lichenous flanks in an attitude of trustful affection. He had brown, wavy hair, and his eyes were of a very brilliant, pale, improbable blue. His head was narrow, his face thin and rather long, his nose aquiline. In old age, though it was difficult to imagine either old, he might grow to have an iron ducal grimness. But now, at twenty-six, it was not the structure of his face that impressed one, it was its expression. That was charming and vivacious, and his smile was an irradiation. He was forever moving, restlessly and rapidly, but with an engaging gracefulness. His frail and slender body seemed to be fed by a spring of inexhaustible energy. "'No, you're not late.' "'You're in time to answer a question,' said Mr. Scogan. "'We were arguing whether amour were a serious matter or no. "'What do you think? Is it serious?' "'Serious?' echoed Ivor. "'Most certainly.' "'I told you so,' cried Mary triumphantly. "'But in what sense serious?' Mr. Scogan asked. "'I mean as an occupation. "'One can go on with it without ever getting bored.' "'I see,' said Mr. Scogan. "'Perfectly.' "'One can occupy oneself with it,' Ivor continued, "'always and everywhere.' Women are always wonderfully the same. Shapes vary a little, that's all. In Spain, with his free hand, he described a series of ample curves. One can't pass them on the stairs. In England, he put the tip of his forefinger against the tip of his thumb, and, lowering his hand, drew out this circle into an imaginary cylinder. In England, they're tubular, but their sentiments are always the same. 
At least I've always found it so. I'm delighted to hear it, said Mr. Scogan. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 16 The ladies had left the room, and the port was circulating. Mr. Scogan filled his glass, passed on the decanter, and, leaning back in his chair, looked about him for a moment in silence. The conversation rippled idly around him, but he disregarded it. He was smiling at some private joke. Gombold noticed his smile. "'What's amusing you?' he asked. "'I was just looking at you all, sitting round this table,' said Mr. Scogan. "'Are we as comic as all that?' "'Not at all,' Mr. Scogan answered politely. "'I was merely amused by my own speculations.' "'And what were they?' "'The idlest, the most academic of speculations. "'I was looking at you one by one, "'and trying to imagine which of the first six Caesars you would each resemble, "'if you were given the opportunity of behaving like a Caesar.' The Caesars are one of my touchstones, Mr. Scogan explained. They are characters functioning, so to speak, in the void. They are human beings developed to their logical conclusions. Hence their unequalled value as a touchstone, a standard. When I meet someone for the first time, I ask myself this question. Given the Caesarian environment, which of the Caesars would this person resemble? Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero? I take each trait of character, each mental and emotional bias, each little oddity, and magnify them a thousand times. The resulting image gives me his Caesarian formula. And which of the Caesars do you resemble? asked Gombold. I'm potentially all of them, Mr. Scogan replied, all, with the possible exception of Claudius, who was much too stupid to be a development of anything in my character. The seeds of Julius' courage and compelling energy, of Augustus' prudence, of the libidinousness and cruelty of Tiberius, of Caligula's folly, of Nero's artistic genius and enormous vanity, are all within me. Given the opportunities, I might have been something fabulous. But circumstances were against me. I was born and brought up in a country rectory. I passed my youth doing a great deal of utterly senseless hard work for a very little money, the result is that now, in middle age, I am the poor thing that I am. But perhaps it is as well. Perhaps, too, it's as well that Dennis hasn't been permitted to flower into a little Nero, and that Ivor remains only potentially a Caligula. Yes, it's better so, no doubt. But it would have been more amusing, as a spectacle, if they had had the chance to develop untrammeled the full horror of their potentialities. It would have been pleasant and interesting to watch their tics and foibles and little vices swelling and burgeoning and blossoming into enormous and fantastic flowers of cruelty and pride and lewdness and avarice. The Caesarian environment makes the Caesar, as the special food and the queenly cell make the queen bee. We differ from the bees in so far that, given the proper food, they can be sure of making a queen every time. With us there is no such certainty. Out of every ten men placed in the Caesarian environment, one will be temperamentally good or intelligent or great. The rest will blossom into Caesars. He will not. Seventy and eighty years ago simple-minded people, reading of the exploits of the Bourbons in South Italy, cried out in amazement, to think that such things could be happening in the nineteenth century. And a few years since we too were astonished to find that in our still more astonishing twentieth century, unhappy blackamoors on the Congo and the Amazon were being treated as English serfs were treated in the time of Stephen. 
Today we are no longer surprised at these things. The black and tans, Harry Ireland, the Poles maltreat the Silesians, the bold fascisti slaughter their poorer countrymen. We take it all for granted. Since the war we wonder at nothing. We have created a Caesarian environment, and a host of little Caesars has sprung up. What could be more natural? Mr. Scogan drank off what was left of his port, and refilled the glass. At this very moment, he went on, the most frightful horrors are taking place in every corner of the world. People are being crushed, slashed, disemboweled, mangled. Their dead bodies rot, and their eyes decay with the rest. Screams of pain and fear go pulsing through the air at the rate of eleven hundred feet per second. After travelling for three seconds, they are perfectly inaudible. These are the distressing facts. But do we enjoy life any less because of them? Most certainly we do not. We feel sympathy, no doubt. We represent to ourselves imaginatively the suffering of nations and individuals, and we deplore them. But after all, what are sympathy and imagination? Precious little, unless the person for whom we feel sympathy happens to be closely involved in our affections. And even then they don't go very far. And a good thing too, for if one had an imagination vivid enough, and a sympathy sufficiently sensitive really to comprehend and to feel the sufferings of other people, one would never have a moment's peace of mind. A really sympathetic race would not so much as know the meaning of happiness. But luckily, as I've already said, we aren't a sympathetic race. At the beginning of the war I used to think I really suffered through imagination and sympathy with those who physically suffered. But after a month or two I had to admit that, honestly, I didn't. And yet I think I have a more vivid imagination than most. One is always alone in suffering. The fact is depressing when one happens to be the sufferer, but it makes pleasure possible for the rest of the world. There was a pause. Henry Wimbush pushed back his chair. I think perhaps we ought to go and join the ladies, he said. So do I, said Ivor, jumping up with alacrity. He turned to Mr. Scogan. Fortunately, he said, we can share our pleasures. We are not always condemned to be happy alone. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 17 Ivor brought his hands down with a bang onto the final chord of his rhapsody. There was just a hint in that triumphant harmony that the seventh had been struck along with the octave by the thumb of the left hand, but the general effect of splendid noise emerged clearly enough. Small details matter little, so long as the general effect is good, and, besides, that hint of the seventh was decidedly modern. He turned round in his seat and tossed the hair back out of his eyes. There, he said, that's the best I can do for you, I'm afraid. Murmurs of applause and gratitude were heard, and Mary, her large china eyes fixed on the performer, cried out aloud, Wonderful! and gasped for new breath, as though she were suffocating. Nature and fortune had vied with one another in heaping on Ivor Lombard all their choicest gifts. He had wealth, and he was perfectly independent. He was good-looking, possessed an irresistible charm of manner, and was the hero of more amorous successes than he could well remember. His accomplishments were extraordinary for their number and variety. He had a beautiful, untrained tenor voice. He could improvise with a startling brilliance, rapidly and loudly, on the piano. He was a good amateur medium and telepathist, and had a considerable first-hand knowledge of the world. 
he could write rhymed verses with an extraordinary rapidity. For painting symbolical pictures he had a dashing style, and if the drawing was sometimes a little weak, the colour was always pyrotechnical. He excelled in amateur theatricals, and, when occasion offered, he could cook with genius. He resembled Shakespeare in knowing little Latin and less Greek, for a mind like his education seems supererogatory. Training would only have destroyed his natural aptitudes. "'Let's go out into the garden,' Ivor suggested. "'It's a wonderful night.' "'Thank you,' said Mr. Scogan. "'But I, for one, prefer these still more wonderful armchairs.' His pipe had begun to bubble oozily every time he pulled at it. He was perfectly happy. Henry Wimbush was also happy. He looked for a moment over his pince-nez in Ivor's direction, and then, without saying anything, returned to the grimy little sixteenth-century account-books, which were now his favourite reading. He knew more about Sir Ferdinando's household expenses than about his own. The outdoor party enrolled under Ivor's banner consisted of Anne, Mary, Dennis, and, rather unexpectedly, Jenny. Outside it was warm and dark. There was no moon. They walked up and down the terrace, and Ivor sang a Neapolitan song, Stretti, Stretti, close, close, with something about the little Spanish girl to follow. The atmosphere began to palpitate. Ivor put his arm round Anne's waist, dropped his head sideways on to her shoulder, and in that position walked on, singing as he walked. It seemed the easiest, the most natural thing in the world. Dennis wondered why he had never done it. He hated Ivor. "'Let's go down to the pool,' said Ivor. He disengaged his embrace, and turned round to shepherd his little flock. They made their way along the side of the house to the entrance of the yew-tree walk that led down to the lower garden. Between the blank precipitous wall of the house and the tall yew-trees, the path was a chasm of impenetrable gloom. Somewhere there were steps down to the right, a gap in the yew-hedge. Dennis, who headed the party, groped his way cautiously. In this darkness one had an irrational fear of yawning precipices, of horrible spiked obstructions. Suddenly, from behind him, he heard a shrill, startled, Oh! and then a sharp, dry concussion that might have been the sound of a slap. After that, Jenny's voice was heard pronouncing, I'm going back to the house. Her tone was decided, and even as she pronounced the words, she was melting away into the darkness. The incident, whatever it had been, was closed. Dennis resumed his forward groping. From somewhere behind, Ivor began to sing again, softly. Phyllis, plus avare que tendre ne gagnant rien à refuser, un jour exigia Sylvandre trois moutons pour un baiser. The melody dropped and climbed again with a kind of easy languor. The warm darkness seemed to pulse like blood about them. Le lendemain nouvelle affaire, pour le berger le troc fut bon. Here are the steps, cried Dennis. He guided his companions over the danger and in a moment they had the turf of the yew-tree walk under their feet. It was lighter here, or at least it was just perceptibly less dark, for the yew-walk was wider than the path that had led them under the lee of the house. Looking up, they could see between the high black hedges a strip of sky and a few stars. Carrie l'obtint de la bergère, went on Ivor, and then interrupted himself to shout, I'm going to run down, and he was off, full speed, down the invisible slope, singing unevenly as he went, Trombezer pour un mouton. The others followed. Dennis shambled in the rear, vainly exhorting everyone to caution. The slope was steep, 
one might break one's neck. What was wrong with these people, he wondered. They had become like young kittens after a dose of catnip. He himself felt a certain kittenishness sporting within him, but it was, like all his emotions, rather a theoretical feeling. It did not overmasteringly seek to express itself in a practical demonstration of kittenishness. "'Be careful!' he shouted once more, and hardly were the words out of his mouth when, thump, there was the sound of a heavy fall in front of him, followed by the long of a breath indrawn with pain, and afterwards by a very sincere ooh. Dennis was almost pleased. He had told them so, the idiots, and they wouldn't listen. He trotted down the slope towards the unseen sufferer. Mary came down the hill like a runaway steam-engine. It was tremendously exciting, this blind rush through the dark. She felt she would never stop. But the ground grew level beneath her feet, her speed insensibly slackened, and suddenly she was caught by an extended arm and brought to an abrupt halt. "'Well,' said Ivor, as he tightened his embrace, "'you're caught now, Anne.' She made an effort to release herself. "'It's not Anne, it's Mary.' Ivor burst into a peal of amused laughter. "'So it is!' he exclaimed. "'I seem to be making nothing but floaters this evening. "'I've already made one with Jenny.' He laughed again, and there was something so jolly about his laughter that Mary could not help laughing too. He did not remove his encircling arm, and somehow it was all so amusing and natural that Mary made no further attempt to escape from it. They walked along by the side of the pool, interlaced. Mary was too short for him to be able, with any comfort, to lay his head on her shoulder. He rubbed his cheek, caressed and caressing, against the thick, sleek mass of her hair. In a little while he began to sing again. The night trembled amorously to the sound of his voice. When he had finished, he kissed her. Anne or Mary, Mary or Anne, it didn't seem to make much difference which it was. There were differences in detail, of course, but the general effect was the same, and, after all, the general effect was the important thing. Dennis made his way down the hill. "'Any damage done?' he called out. "'Is that you, Dennis? I've hurt my ankle so, and my knee, and my hand. I'm all in pieces.' "'My poor Anne,' he said. But then, he couldn't help adding, it was silly to start running downhill in the dark. "'Ass!' she retorted, in a tone of tearful irritation. "'Of course it was.' He sat down beside her on the grass, and found himself breathing the faint, delicious atmosphere of perfume that she carried always with her. "'Light a match,' she commanded. "'I want to look at my wounds.' He felt in his pockets for the matchbox. The light spurted and then grew steady. Magically, a little universe had been created, a world of colours and forms. Anne's face, the shimmering orange of her dress, her white, bare arms, a patch of green turf. And round about, a darkness that had become solid and utterly blind. Anne held out her hands. Both were green and earthy with her fall, and the left exhibited two or three red abrasions. Not so bad, she said, but Dennis was terribly distressed, and his emotion was intensified when, looking up at her face, he saw that the trace of tears, involuntary tears of pain, lingered on her eyelashes. He pulled out his handkerchief and began to wipe away the dirt from the wounded hand. The match went out. It was not worth while to light another. Anne allowed herself to be attended to meekly and gratefully. Thank you, she said when he'd finished cleaning and bandaging her hand. And there was something in her tone that made him feel that she had lost her superiority over him, that she was younger than he, had become suddenly almost a child. He felt tremendously large and protective. 
the feeling was so strong that instinctively he put his arm about her. She drew closer, leaned against him, and so they sat in silence. Then, from below, soft but wonderfully clear through the still darkness, they heard the sound of Ivor's singing. He was going on with his half-finished song. Le lendemain Phyllis plus tendre ne voulant de plaire au berger, fut trop heureuse de lui rendre trois moutons pour un baiser. There was a rather prolonged pause. It was as though time were being allowed for the giving and receiving of a few of those thirty kisses. Then the voice sang on. Le lendemain, Felice Pussage aurait d'un mouton et chien pour un baiser que le village à Lisette donnait pour rien. The last note died away into an uninterrupted silence. Are you better? Dennis whispered. Are you comfortable like this? She nodded a yes to both questions. Trois moutons pour un baiser, the sheep, the woolly button, ba, 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 or the shepherd. Yes, decidedly, he felt himself to be the shepherd now. He was the master, the protector. A wave of courage swelled through him, warm as wine. He turned his head and began to kiss her face, at first rather randomly, then with more precision on the mouth. Anne averted her head. He kissed the ear, the smooth nape that his movements presented to him. No, she protested, no, Dennis. Why not? It spoils our friendship, and that was so jolly. Bosh, said Dennis. She tried to explain. Can't you see, she said, it isn't, it isn't our stunt at all. It was true. Somehow she had never thought of Dennis in the light of a man who might make love. She had never so much as conceived the possibilities of an amorous relationship with him. He was so absurdly young, so, so, she couldn't find the adjective, but she knew what she meant. Why isn't it our stunt, asked Dennis, and by the way, that's a horrible and inappropriate expression. Because it isn't. But if I say it is, it makes no difference. I say it isn't. I shall make you say it is. All right, Dennis, but you must do it another time. I must go in and get my ankle into hot water. It's beginning to swell. Reasons of health could not be gainsaid. Dennis got up reluctantly and helped his companion to her feet. She took a cautious step. Ooh! She halted and leaned heavily on his arm. I'll carry you, Dennis offered. He had never tried to carry a woman, but on the cinema it always looked an easy piece of heroism. You couldn't, said Anne. Of course I can. He felt larger and more protective than ever. Put your arms round my neck, he ordered. She did so, and, stooping, he picked her up under the knees and lifted her from the ground. Good heavens, what a weight! He took five staggering steps up the slope, then almost lost his equilibrium, and had to deposit his burden suddenly with something of a bump. Anne was shaking with laughter. I said you couldn't, my poor Dennis. I can, said Dennis, without conviction. I'll try again. It's perfectly sweet of you to offer, but I'd rather walk, thanks. She laid her hand on his shoulder and, thus supported, began to limp slowly up the hill. My poor Dennis, she repeated, and laughed again. Humiliated, he was silent. It seemed incredible that only two minutes ago he should have been holding her in his embrace, kissing her. Incredible. She was helpless then, a child. Now she had regained all her superiority. She was once more the far-off being, desired and unassailable. Why had he been such a fool as to suggest that carrying stunt? He reached the house in a state of the profoundest depression. He helped Anne upstairs, 
left her in the hands of a maid, and came down again into the drawing-room. He was surprised to find them all sitting just where he had left them. He had expected that, somehow, everything would be quite different. It seemed such a prodigious time since he went away. All silent and all damned, he reflected, as he looked at them. Mr. Scogan's pipe still wheezed. That was the only sound. Henry Wimbush was still deep in his account books. He had just made the discovery that Sir Ferdinando was in the habit of eating oysters the whole summer through, regardless of the absence of the justifying R. Gombold, in horn-rimmed spectacles, was reading. Jenny was mysteriously scribbling in her red notebook. And, seated in her favourite armchair at the corner of the hearth, Priscilla was looking through a pile of drawings. One by one she held them out at arm's length, and, throwing back her mountainous orange head, looked long and attentively through half-closed eyelids. She wore a pale sea-green dress. On the slope of her mauve-powdered décolletage, diamonds twinkled. An immensely long cigarette-holder projected at an angle from her face. Diamonds were embedded in her high-piled coiffure. They glittered every time she moved. It was a batch of Ivor's drawings, sketches of spirit life made in the course of tranced tours through the other world. On the back of each sheet, descriptive titles were written. Portrait of an Angel, 15th of March, 20. Astral Beings at Play, 3rd of December, 19. A Party of Souls on Their Way to a Higher Sphere, 21st of May, 21. Before examining the drawings on the obverse of each sheet, she turned it over to read the title. Try as she could, and she tried hard, Priscilla had never seen a vision, or succeeded in establishing any communication with the spirit world. She had to be content with the reported experiences of others. "'What have you done with the rest of your party?' she asked, looking up as Dennis entered the room. He explained. Anne had gone to bed. Ivor and Mary were still in the garden. He selected a book and a comfortable chair, and tried, as far as the disturbed state of his mind would permit him, to compose himself for an evening's reading. The lamplight was utterly serene. There was no movement, save the stir of Priscilla among her papers. All silent and all damned, Dennis repeated to himself, all silent and all damned. It was nearly an hour later when Ivor and Mary made their appearance. We waited to see the moon rise, said Ivor. It was gibbous, you know, Mary explained, very technical and scientific. It was so beautiful down in the garden, the trees, the scent of the flowers, the stars. Ivor waved his arms, and when the moon came up, it was really too much. It made me burst into tears. He sat down at the piano and opened the lid. There were a great many meteorites, said Mary, to anyone who would listen. The earth must just be coming into the summer shower of them, in July and August, but Ivor had already begun to strike the keys. He played the garden, the stars, the scent of the flowers, the rising moon. He even put in a nightingale that was not there. Mary looked on and listened with parted lips. The others pursued their occupations without appearing to be seriously disturbed. On this very July day, exactly three hundred and fifty years ago, Sir Ferdinando had eaten seven dozen oysters. The discovery of this fact gave Henry Wimbush a peculiar pleasure. He had a natural piety which made him delight in the celebration of memorial feasts. Three hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the seven dozen oysters. 
he wished he'd known before dinner he would have ordered champagne. On her way to bed, Mary paid a call. The light was out in Anne's room, but she was not yet asleep. "'Why didn't you come down to the garden with us?' Mary asked. I fell down and twisted my ankle. Dennis helped me home. Mary was full of sympathy. Inwardly, too, she was relieved to find Anne's non-appearance so simply accounted for. She had been vaguely suspicious down there in the garden, suspicious of what she hardly knew, but there had seemed to be something a little louche in the way she had suddenly found herself alone with Ivor. Not that she minded, of course, far from it, but she didn't like the idea that perhaps she was the victim of a put-up job. "'I do hope you'll be better to-morrow,' she said, and she commiserated with Anne on all she had missed. The garden, the stars, the scent of the flowers, the meteorites through whose summer shower the earth was now passing, the rising moon and its gibbosity. And then they had such interesting conversation. What about? About almost everything. Nature, art, science, poetry, the stars, spiritualism, the relations of the sexes, music, religion. Ivor, she thought, had an interesting mind. The two ladies parted affectionately. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 18 The nearest Roman Catholic church was upwards of twenty miles away. Ivor, who was punctilious in his devotions, came down early to breakfast and had his car at the door ready to start by a quarter to ten. It was a smart, expensive-looking machine, enamelled a pure lemon yellow and upholstered in emerald green leather. There were two seats, three if you squeezed tightly enough, and their occupants were protected from wind, dust and weather by a glazed sedan that rose an elegant eighteenth-century hump from the midst of the body of the car. Mary had never been to a Roman Catholic service, thought it would be an interesting experience, and, when the car moved off through the great gates of the courtyard, she was occupying the spare seat in the sedan. The sea-lion horn roared, faintlier, faintlier, and they were gone. In the parish church of Crome, Mr. Bodium preached on 1 Kings 6.18, and the cedar of the house within was carved with knots. A sermon of immediately local interest. For the past two years, the problem of the war memorial had exercised the minds of all those in Crome who had enough leisure, or mental energy, or party spirit to think of such things. Henry Wimbush was all for a library, a library of local literature, stocked with county histories, old maps of the district, monographs on the local antiquities, dialect dictionaries, handbooks of the local geology and natural history. He liked to think of the villagers, inspired by such reading, making up parties of a Sunday afternoon to look for fossils and flint arrowheads. The villagers themselves favoured the idea of a memorial reservoir and water supply. But the busiest and most articulate party followed Mr. Bodium in demanding something religious in character, a second lichgate, for example, a stained-glass window, a monument of marble, or, if possible, all three. So far, however, nothing had been done, partly because the memorial committee had never been able to agree, partly for the more cogent reason that too little money had been subscribed to carry out any of the proposed schemes. 
Every three or four months Mr. Bodiam preached a sermon on the subject. His last had been delivered in March. It was high time that his congregation had a fresh reminder. And the cedar of the house within was carved with knops. Mr. Bodiam touched lightly on Solomon's temple. From thence he passed to temples and churches in general. What were the characteristics of these buildings dedicated to God? Obviously the fact of their, from the human point of view, complete uselessness. They were unpractical buildings carved with knobs. Solomon might have built a library. Indeed, what could be more to the taste of the world's wisest man? He might have dug a reservoir. What more useful in a parched city like Jerusalem? He did neither. He built a house all carved with knobs, useless and unpractical. Why? Because he was dedicating the work to God. There had been much talk in Crome about the proposed war memorial. A war memorial was, in its very nature, a work dedicated to God. It was a token of thankfulness that the first stage in the culminating world war had been crowned by the triumph of righteousness. It was at the same time a visibly embodied supplication that God might not long delay the advent which alone could bring the final peace. A library, a reservoir, Mr. Bodiam scornfully and indignantly condemned the idea. These were works dedicated to man, not to God. As a war memorial, they were totally unsuitable. A lichgate had been suggested. This was an object which answered perfectly to the definition of a war memorial, a useless work dedicated to God and carved with knobs. One lichgate, it was true, already existed but nothing would be easier than to make a second entrance into the courtyard, and a second entrance would need a second gate. Other suggestions had been made, stained-glass window, a monument of marble. Both these were admirable, especially the latter. It was high time that the war memorial was erected. It might soon be too late. At any moment, like a thief in the night, God might come. Meanwhile, a difficulty stood in the way. Funds were inadequate. All should subscribe according to their means. Those who had lost relations in the war might reasonably be expected to subscribe a sum equal to that which they would have had to pay in funeral expenses if the relative had died while at home. Further delay was disastrous. The war memorial must be built at once. He appealed to the patriotism and the Christian sentiments of all his hearers. Henry Wimbush walked home thinking of the books he would present to the War Memorial Library, if ever it came into existence. He took the path through the fields. It was pleasanter than the road. At the first stile a group of village boys, loutish young fellows, all dressed in the hideous, ill-fitting black, which makes a funeral of every English Sunday and holiday, were assembled drearily guffawing as they smoked their cigarettes. They made way for Henry Wimbush, touching their caps as he passed. He returned their salute. His bowler and face were one in their unruffled gravity. In Sir Ferdinando's time, he reflected, in the time of his son, Sir Julius, these young men would have had their Sunday diversions even at Crome, remote and rustic Crome. There would have been archery, skittles, dancing, social amusements in which they would have partaken as members of a conscious community. Now they had nothing, nothing except Mr. Bodium's forbidding boys' club, and the rare dances and concerts organised by himself. 
Boredom, or the urban pleasures of the county metropolis, were the alternatives that presented themselves to these poor youths. Country pleasures were no more. They had been stamped out by the Puritans. In Manningham's diary for 1600, there was a queer passage, he remembered, a very queer passage. Certain magistrates in Berkshire, Puritan magistrates, had had wind of a scandal. One moonlit summer night they had ridden out with their posse, and there, among the hills, they had come upon a company of men and women dancing stark naked among the sheep-cuts. The magistrates and their men had ridden their horses into the crowd. How self-conscious the poor people must suddenly have felt, how helpless without their clothes against armed and booted horsemen. The dancers were arrested, whipped, jailed, set in the stocks. The moonlight dance was never danced again. What old, earthy, panic right came to extinction here? he wondered. Who knows? Perhaps their ancestors had danced like this in the moonlight ages before Adam and Eve were so much as thought of. He liked to think so. And now it was no more. These weary young men, if they wanted to dance, would have to bicycle six miles to the town. The country was desolate, without life of its own, without indigenous pleasures. The pious magistrates had snuffed out forever a little happy flame that had burned from the beginning of time. And as on Tullia's tomb one lamp burned clear, unchanged for fifteen hundred year, he repeated the lines to himself, and was desolated to think of all the murdered past. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.